0: Here we go for episode three. Last time we met, I was talking at you about the new world that was created by the Gilded Age. I noted that this transition in the American economy created massive amounts of wealth for some, while it created desperate poverty for others. I also hinted at the idea that there was some exploitation of labor going on inside these workplaces. As I said the last time, workers would not be passive victims in this process. They fought back in a myriad of ways, which we'll explore here in a few minutes. In Episode 3, we'll discuss the labor-management conflict throughout the Gilded Age. What we'll see are the ways in which workers attempted to form collectives, broadly defined, and how their bosses attempted to suppress them. In sum, this would be one of the most violent periods in American history when it comes to worker-employer relations. So let's get at it. As I said before, it's important for us to remember that workers were not passive victims in this process of industrialization throughout the Gilded Age. Um, There's a couple examples that we can point to that will demonstrate this point. uh, The first of which is a secret underground society that referred to itself as the Molly Maguire's now the Molly Maguire's uh, Were essentially a collection of Irish and Irish American coal miners uh, that existed that worked throughout the uh, uh, Coal region of Pennsylvania now we would probably call them terrorists because bottom line was they were involved in things that we would recognize as acts of terror they would bomb buildings uh, they would burn down company buildings uh, they would beat up uh, company officials and in some very extreme cases they would either kidnap uh, company officials and ransom them back to the company or in the most extreme cases they would be involved with murder now obviously I am not condoning violence of any any sort of any fashion uh, but it is important for us to understand that the, 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 the avenues of resistance when it comes to the exploitation at work was relatively narrow, relatively thin. And so from the perspective of the Molly Maguires, uh, this was a way that you were able to kind of stand up for yourself at work. The other example that we have here would be a strike, and to be very clear what I mean by strike, labor stoppage. I'm not talking about a riot. I'm not talking about some sort of act of terrorism. That's very different than what we just got done discussing. What I'm talking about is uh, a collection of workers that stop working and uh, refuse to go back to work until some of their demands are met now by demands i'll be really clear again i'm talking about things like wage increases raises uh better working conditions Or other sorts of workplace grievances. Now, you know, it can be more complex and complicated than that, but generally those are your heavy hitters. In any case, one of the most famous strikes of the late 19th century would be a strike that historians refer to as the Great Uprising of 1877. Now essentially what this is, is a railroad strike and i've made mention of how powerful railroad tycoons were as well as the people who also uh were 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 supplying things like the steel and uh the raw materials that went into the production of railroads but the fact was this was a great success for the working class the great uprising of 1877 was a successful strike and primarily it was successful because Uh, all railroad traffic west of the Mississippi River had ground to a halt. Workers uh, on the railroad, lots of different collection of workers, meaning different categories of workers, refused to handle trains, refused to service them, refused to clean them, refused to hook them up to new tracks, and it was wildly, wildly effective. And what it demonstrated, more than anything else, was that when they hung together— uh, when they engaged in forms of collective resistance, uh, they could be successful. And you have to ask yourself how all of this happens. When it comes to successful forms of resistance, um, it's really important to understand that workers occupy a place that other Americans generally avoid. They don't go. Certainly their bosses and their superiors avoided it. Um, The space, the neighborhoods, were bastions of collectivity. Think of it this way. We're, We're all in this boat together. And the neighborhoods in which workers lived were, generally speaking, homogeneous. Uh, everybody in that community uh, was of the working-class variety so if the issues that you were struggling with uh, were problematic there's a very good chance that your neighbor was struggling with those same sorts of issues as well now not only were in in many cases these neighborhoods exclusively working-class but in many times uh, they, they tended to be ethnically and to a lesser extent racially homogeneous as well Um, You'll understand what I mean a lot better in the next episode when we talk about immigration processes But another element to this would be the stores in which workers shopped now We've talked about this a little bit up until this point in this series Uh, When you go out to get your stuff you generally go get it at a big-box store that would not have been the case for the working class in the late 19th century Uh, Many of these individuals were going to get their stuff from from fellow countrymen. Quick example. If you happened to be Jewish and you happened to be religious and there were certain foods that you needed to consume during certain parts of the year, you couldn't just roll into any store and expect that that proprietor was going to have what you needed. And so in a lot of instances, you've got... People from one part of the world who live in the same neighborhood of those same people, they do different jobs, but ultimately they're selling them their stuff. And it's this very cohesive element of community that's really going to go a long way when it comes to getting all workers on the same page. Saloons are also a bastion of collectivity. Let me give you a quick example from uh, The Jungle. As you know, we've been using that as, a, as, a, as an example in this series. Uh, when, when Jurgis comes across a $100 bill, I'm talking about that part in the book, he, he stumbles across this $100 bill, which was a lot of money in 1892 and you know he, he he's he's elated in the sense that this is going to solve a lot of problems for him but at the same time he doesn't know how he can pull this off and to be clear, what I mean here is he, he can't exactly go deposit that in the bank, like, you know, Citibank, Bank of America. It's not as if they would just go ahead and accept a hundred dollar bill from this raggedy looking worker off the street. They would assume he stole it. Um, he couldn't go into Marshall Field in Chicago and, and ask them if they might break it or change it out for him if he bought himself a new suit of clothes. Uh, they would assume that he stole it as well, or that he mugged somebody to get it. There was one place in all of Chicago that he knew that he could go that they would probably break it up for him, and that would be the saloon. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly where he goes. He goes to this saloon, and he asks the barkeeper if uh, he bought a drink, bought a meal, he would break the $100 bill. And that's exactly what ends up happening. The fact is, saloons were banks for the working class. Uh, we are talking about a transient society You know a collection of people and a lot of people who were in between addresses were going to use the address of the saloon as their permanent address Of course, it was a hangout place, but I would go so far as to call saloons community centers for workers uh, In the late 19th century and so these are places where people got together They aired their grievances and to some extent they designed plans and how they might get around them Okay one last physical location before we move on, and that would be churches. Um, now, generally speaking, I mean houses of worship, so Catholic churches, uh, Protestant churches, Jewish temples and synagogues. That's what I'm talking about here. You have to understand that this is a long, long time before there's going to be any social welfare net in the United States. The government's not really gonna be in the business of taking care of anybody, providing even the most basic of services. And so if you don't want your own kind, if you happen to be Catholic for for example, if you don't want a, a, a bunch of Italian Catholics coming over and basically becoming vagrants, basically becoming street people, then you're gonna have to organize to take care of your own. And in the late 19th century, it was the religious community. It was churches and synagogues that that ultimately offered that service. And just like the example that we use with saloons, you know, there's a level of collectivity here. There's a level of, you know, we all share the same problems and we all need to come up with some solutions. So with respect to space, the physical space in these cities that workers occupied, that's going to be a really important ingredient when it comes to working class resistance. There's another element of working-class resistance that we need to talk about, and that would be unionism. Now, again, what a union is, is a collection of workers that bands together to bargain collectively with their boss, with their employers, okay? Now, why do they want to bargain collectively? Well, let me put it this way. In class, if I've got a student that complains about their grade, that says that I was too tough on them, and I was singling them out... If they were to go to the dean um, and 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 complain about how hard I am, I would point to the rest of the class and say, "Well, you know, there are 23 other people in this class, and I'm not getting any complaints out of them. Some of them scored better, some of them scored worse, but the bottom line is they're not complaining. Why are you complaining?" Now, it'd be a much different story if 23 people all went down to the dean and all complained that I was being too tough, that I wasn't being fair, that I was being unfair with respect to my grading practices. I think you can see what I'm saying. Workers want to bargain collectively with their employers primarily because it gives them more leverage and they're far more likely to get concessions out of their employers as opposed to bargaining on a one-on-one basis. Now, there's a long history of unionism in the United States. Most of us think back to the 1930s and 1940s as the heyday of union drives, and there's some truth to that. But the fact was unions existed long, long before the dawn of the 20th century. Now the brand of unionism is a little bit different in that capacity. The brand of unionism that exists before the 20th century is largely craft unionism, okay? And this is an important point because it's going to dominate working-class uh, community life for the next several decades. What I mean by craft unionism is that you had to be a craftsman, emphasize the word man, to be a member of that union. Now, how did you become a craftsman? That's, that's the million-dollar question. Now, to be clear here, by, by craftsman, I'm talking about a butcher, talking about a shoemaker, talking about a cigar roller, okay? I'm not talking about someone like our friend Jurgis Rudkus, an unskilled worker. To be a craftsman, you had to learn a craft, and to learn the craft, you had to go through what was called an apprenticeship. Think of it as a learning process. You're not getting paid to work, to run these errands, and to do some of the menial tasks that uh, you've been apprenticed to. You're, you're actually doing that work for free, but you're gaining some knowledge in the process. You're learning how to become a skilled cigar roller. And the idea here is to take that skill set and apply it to the job market in due time. And once you graduated from your apprenticeship, you could become a journeyman. Now, for all you French speakers out there, you can tell me that the word journeyman uh, is, is really rooted in the, in the, in the French word jour or as uh, uh, the french would say day okay so journeyman is man who works during the day and generally speaking what that means is an employee you can now uh, be hired because you have competent skill sets uh in in whatever craft that we're talking about okay now the ultimate goal is to become a master craftsman and in that point you're you're actually going to reach out and you're going to not only hire journeymen to work underneath you, but you're actually going to probably get some apprentices that come to see you because you have a master skill set. Now, with respect to craft unionism, it's important that you understand that you are going to be a collection of skilled workers, emphasize the word skilled workers, And if you were an unskilled worker, if you were one of these people that were either, you know, before their apprenticeship or hadn't even begun your apprenticeship, then you couldn't be in the union. I want to go back for just a second and explain, you know, who was eligible to become a craftsman. Not just anybody could go down and fill out an application. In order to become a skilled craftsman, you had to be one, a man, and two, a white man. Not, not just anybody could go into the blacksmith trade. Now, were there exceptions? Sure, there there were exceptions. But by and large, this was a great barrier. It was a gatekeeper, if you want to look at it that way, that kept people of color and especially women out of the crafts. OK, so I want you to think about something. Was craft unionism a form of resistance? Yeah, it was. OK, but you have to understand that it only represented a very small minority of what you might think of as american workers in the late 19th century by the late 19th century what you had was the second industrial revolution and as we've established the standardization of production is ultimately giving rise to these huge uh uh, uh, needs for unskilled uh, labor so most workers by the late 19th century were not skilled workers they were unskilled workers moreover most unskilled workers came from abroad they came from places like russia or china uh we're beginning to see more and more women entering the workforce And so my point with this is, yes, craft unionism existed, and yes, it was a form of resistance, but it only represented a very small minority of the working class population in the United States. Enter into our conversation a group calling themselves the Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, or more simply, the Knights of Labor. Now, for your note-taking purposes, I want you to understand that the Knights of Labor rejected the ideas of craft unionism. What they wanted to establish was a brand of unionism that was very inclusive. Make sure that you get that in your notes. The Knights of Labor approached unionism in a very inclusive way. Their motto was unionism for all. We want to organize, unionize unskilled workers right alongside their skilled worker counterparts. We want to organize the men but we also want to organize the women. We want to reach out to native-born, English-speaking white workers, but we also want to bring our foreign-born, non-English-speaking brethren into this conversation as well. That's what I mean when I say the Knights of Labor were very inclusive. Their leader was a blacksmith by trade, a guy by the name of uh, Terence V. Powderly, And Powderly envisioned this movement becoming a national movement in its scope. And by national movement, I don't just mean in every corner of the country. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I mean that. But primarily what I'm talking about is that this would have a political element to this as well. So we're not just trying to organize at work and force the issue with our bosses for better working conditions and higher wages and things of that variety. We want to get behind working class friendly, worker friendly politicians and elect them to city council members, right? Elect them to become mayors, elect them to become Governors, state senators, House of uh, Representative members, presidents of the United States. That's what Powderly had envisioned. And in a way, what this is going to become, what the Knights of Labor are going to become, would be a form of working class uh, political organization. In a way, the Knights of Labor were a political voice for workers at a time when most politicians really weren't paying all that close attention to the working class. The Knights of Labor are going to peak in 1886, and I mean that in terms of both a social movement but also the influence that they're going to have over American politics. In 1886, the Knights of Labor are going to take up what they call the eight-hour day movement. Okay, what they want is the federal government to mandate an eight-hour work day. Keep in mind I told you that the Knights of Labor saw themselves not just as a social movement but also as a political movement and then what they wanted was the federal government to come in And basically provide some protection for workers and they saw the eight-hour movement as providing that protection now eight hours if you take a day cycle 24 hours and you divide by eight what you get is three okay and the Knights of Labor thought that this was a far more humane way to organize the day and they were right their motto was eight hours for work eight hours for sleep and eight hours for what they called what you will in other words eight hours for leisure eight hours for downtime eight hours for recreation and this was a good thing it was a good way to reorganize the day but that really wasn't the genius of it part of the genius was if you're andrew carnegie and you want carnegie Steel to hum morning noon and night you want to crank up the stuff if by law you can only work a worker for eight hours and then you have to send her or him back home What that means is you're going to have to reach into the ranks of the unemployed and you're going to have to pull them in and put them to work, give them jobs. And this is beginning to illuminate some of the genius of the Knights of Labor here. Because as we've established in this series before, any time something becomes more difficult to get, it becomes rarer, right? I don't care if you're talking about gold or you're talking about labor. If it's harder to come by, it's going to be more expensive. What that means for workers is your wages are going to go up. If you're Carnegie and you want to guarantee your steady supply of labor, then you're going to have to give people a reason to work for you as opposed to working for some other steel company or other company and in some other industry altogether. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, money fixes a lot of problems and so now these employers are gonna have to compete against one another and the way that they're gonna do that is through a bidding war for wages okay so that's genius but the true genius of all of this is that what happens when you give more people more money especially average people is they tend to spend it right and when people spend money they create something that economists call demand And when you have a higher demand in the American economy, generally speaking, what you've got is a situation where the only way to meet that demand is to crank up production, and the only way that you can do that is by hiring more workers. You hire more workers, those workers get paid, they put that money back into the American economy, and it's upwardly cyclical, and that's the true genius of the idea of an eight-hour workday, okay? Okay. Now, in 1886, the Knights of Labor, I'm not going to say had been taken over, but had been heavily influenced by uh, radicals. And to be clear here, I'm talking about socialists, people that wanted a much, much heavier hand of government at a time where most Americans believed in this laissez-faire form of government. They want the government not only more prevalent in the economy, but in ways they want that government to plan out the economy, okay? You also have anarchists, people that don't believe in government of any variety, or at least this particular kind of government, okay? Now, I realize that these two groups might be odd bedfellows, but the fact of the matter is, what you're talking about is what historians refer to as a Chicago-style anarchist. And arguably the most famous Chicago-style anarchist in American history is a guy originally from Texas by the name of Albert Parsons, okay? Parsons was a mover and shaker within not only the Knights of Labor, but also the eight-hour movement. And ultimately, the Knights are going to zero in on a huge employer in Chicago, uh, a company called the McCormick Reaper Works. They produced, as you might imagine, uh, farm equipment, okay? But they were a huge, huge employer, employed thousands of workers all across the city. And the idea is pretty simple. Let's start at McCormick. Let's see if we can get them to embrace the eight hour workday. And if they do, it's not gonna be long before the steel companies do, and the meat packers do, and the brewers do. And pretty quickly here, all of Chicago will succumb to the eight hour push. And if we can organize Chicago, right, dominoes will begin to fall all across the United States. But it begins at McCormick. Now, part of the challenge is that the Chicago police were on hand and, you know, they're not on hand for no good reason. They're trying to maintain peace and order, okay? And when Parsons and his colleagues begin to, you know, give these fiery speeches, uh, they begin to break up the meetings and they send everybody home. What Parsons is going to do is encourage everyone to come back come back on May 1st, 1886, meet me in Haymarket Square, a very electric part of the city with respect to politics. He was going to hold a rally at uh, Haymarket Square in Chicago, May 1st, International Workers' Day, 1886. Now, let me take you back a little bit, because this will help make sense of things here in a second. Behind closed doors, in private conversations, not public, not advocating, but nonetheless, Parsons and some of his friends would openly talk about the use of what they called the Great Equalizer. And by Great Equalizer, I mean dynamite, okay? Now, the reason that they called dynamite the Great Equalizer is that they saw it as an equal opportunity killer. It didn't care if you were rich or poor. It didn't care if you were native-born or you were foreign-born it would kill you with equal opportunity, okay? Now, it's one thing to have these conversations in the privacy of your own home, and it's another thing to go out there on stage and begin to teach and advocate this, to teach and advocate the violent overthrow of the American government through the use of dynamite. Unfortunately for Parsons, somebody did take this idea, this concept, a little bit too literally. Parson goes on stage... Uh, on in Haymarket Square in May 1st, 1886, and he begins to give this fiery speech. And in the middle of it, when there's throngs and throngs of people out there listening to him, including the Chicago Police Department, somebody threw a pipe bomb into the crowd. It exploded, and with it, it killed four Chicago police officers. Numerous more were injured. This is an incredible tragedy. There's just no other way to put it. I mean, people literally died. But what it's also going to do is it's going to really take the wind out of the labor movement's sails, especially with respect to the Knights of Labor, okay? They had just begun to get some momentum here. And now what you've got is the use of violence. And when you resort to the use of violence, what it does is it gives your adversary, the system if you want to look at it that way, it gives the system an excuse to come back after you. And that's exactly what happens. Parsons and many of his colleagues are rounded up, they're put on trial, and they're executed. And in addition to their executions, uh, there's, there's also some, I guess you might call it persecution of the labor movement, generally speaking, even if it is just propagandizing, right? That many of these people that we're talking about that are pushing for an eight-hour day, that, that, that are striking for better working conditions, They might talk a good game, but inherently what they are is violent, right? They are violent people. Many of them are coming from places like Italy and Russia. So there's a xenophobic fear of foreigner element to this as well, that we can't trust these individuals because in addition to being inherently violent, you know, they're not American. They're anti-American. They're anti-government. And just look at their attack on law and order. They literally attacked the Chicago Police Department. So for workers generally speaking, and broadly defined, this is really, really bad news. And one individual that I'd like you to know about that understands how bad news this is, is a guy, actually he's from England, but nonetheless, he's a skilled craftsman by trade, Samuel Gompers. Gompers is a cigar roller, and he's the president of his cigar rolling union. And... He was a card-carrying member of the Knights of Labor, but after May April, uh, excuse me, May 1886, he's going to see the writing on the wall. He's going to bring his cigar rollers out of the Knights of Labor, and he's going to subsequently form a new labor conglomeration that will be named the American Federation of Labor, or more succinctly, the AFL. Now, Whereas the Knights of Labor wanted to organize everybody, right? Skilled, unskilled, foreign-born, native-born, the AFL only really wanted to include skilled craftsmen. Cigar rollers, yes, right? People like Jurgis Rudkus, not so much. Now, as we've maintained and we've established already, to be a skilled craftsman, you had to generally be white. You had to be a man. And you had to speak English. So, again, we're not talking about the vast majority of workers during this time period. It's a very narrow margin of them, okay? What's more is that the AFL very much disagreed with uh, Powderly's idea that the Knights of Labor, or labor generally speaking, should be, you know, political in its orientation, should be dabble into politics. As a matter of fact, what Gompers recommended was that the AFL, or any other working class organization for that matter, just engage in what he called pure and simple unionism. Unions should bargain collectively with their bosses for better pay, better conditions, so on and so forth, and that's it. We don't need to stick our noses into politics, and we absolutely don't need to bring in the federal government with respect to what's going on. That's what he meant. By pure and simple unionism. So if you're keeping score, if you want to look at it that way, employers one, workers zero. As I said before, the Haymarket affair. Uh, Is really going to put the labor movement on the defensive with respect to public opinion in the United States it's going to uh, Give a lot of people the excuse to claim that workers are violent and because many unskilled workers Very similar to our friend Jurgis Rudkus, are coming from abroad. um, There's a xenophobic fear of foreigner element to this as well so Um, The Haymarket Affair is also one of numerous different examples of labor management conflicts that turned violent in the Gilded Age. Another example that I'd like you to be mindful of would be the 1892 Homestead Strike in Western Pennsylvania. Now, the Homestead Steelworks was owned and operated by Andrew Carnegie, one of the great captains of industry throughout the late 19th century. And The plant manager of Homestead Steel was a guy by the name of Henry Frick and in 1892 Andrew Carnegie went to Henry Frick and he said, I want you to get rid of any union element in this factory. I don't want any interference in the process of production and the fact is the unions interfere with that process. It should start and stop with us management. Well, the simple fact of the matter was, Carnegie was more or less declaring war on one of the largest and most well-organized unions in all of the United States. And of course, that would be the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. Very well organized with deep pockets for all intents and purposes. This is a tall task for Henry Frick. Make no mistake about it. And it's very difficult to tell a union worker from a non-union worker. It's not as if they wear signs around their necks. In any case, to make sure that he's got everybody, to make sure that everybody has been fired, that needs to be fired, he fires everyone, okay? Everyone in the factory is let go, but Frick makes it really clear. Listen, I've got great news. You can have your jobs back. You can have the exact same job back that you were doing today. You can have it back tomorrow as long as you do one thing for me, one small thing for me. I need you to sign this contract that says you will never join the union. As long as you make the promise, the the written pledge that you will not join the union, you can have your old jobs back. Well, as far as the union was concerned, this was blasphemy. Uh, They had a right to assemble and in their minds they had a right to bargain collectively. So what the amalgamation is going to do is they're going to issue a strike against homestead steel. Now again, the concept of a strike is relatively simple. A refusal to work, and the idea here is if workers refuse to work, then no steel will be produced. If no steel is being produced, then it's going to make Andrew Carnegie's life pretty difficult because he will have a difficulty with respect to making money. If there's no steel to sell, then he's going to lose money and market share. That's the idea here. Now, on the flip side of the coin, if you're Andrew Carnegie, what you want to do is you want to replace those striking workers with strike-breaking workers, okay? And ultimately, this is what they're going to try to do. And the workers understand what is up against them, which is why they were bringing guns and even went so far as to bring cannon to the job site. When I say you had class conflict, you literally had workers that were firing at their bosses and their bosses were returning that fire. And for a while, for several days anyway, the workers were holding out relatively well. It was going relatively well, all things considered. Henry Frick is not a guy that's going to roll over easily though. What he's going to do, and this is going to be very indicative of the way that government will work with respect to labor management relations for the next several decades. Henry Frick is going to call the governor of Pennsylvania and he's going to say something to the effect of, Governor, we think that you're doing a wonderful job out here. In Western Pennsylvania however we got this little labor dispute that's going on essentially what we see it as is a trespassing on our property and we need you to mobilize the forces of the state to evict these trespassers from our factory property and ultimately that's what happens Ultimately what you see is the state militia that's been mobilized and because they're semi-professional soldiers fighting against a ragtag group of workers Ultimately, they are able to break the strike and when the strike is broken the workforce is replaced by non-union labor Okay, so in 1892 with the homestead strike what you have again on your scorecard employers two and workers zero Last but not least, I need you to know about the 1894 Pullman strike. Now, George C. Pullman was a guy that made luxury train cars, okay? These would be like uh, those luxurious jets that movie stars and famous athletes travel across the country on. It was the ultimate form of luxury, and at this particular moment, the United States moves via rail, okay? So if you had to go from Chicago to San Francisco, you definitely wanted to stay on a Pullman car. Now, the individuals that made Pullman cars were very similar to people that we've talked about in this series before they were overworked and they were underpaid and they worked in very dangerous conditions. But I would say that the Pullman workers actually had it quite a bit worse than your average rank-and-file worker in 1894. And here's why. With respect to wanting to control every element of the process of production, George Pullman made Andrew Carnegie look like a choir boy. Pullman not only wanted to control all the conditions at work, he even went so far as to control the conditions at home. He literally owned the town in which workers lived. He called it, wait for this, Pullman Town. Not as if he's got an ego on him at all. But in any case, he owned the apartments in which they lived. He owned the stores from which they shopped. He owned the water from which they Purchased their water. He owned the town, lock, stock, and barrel. Now, when I say that he owned the stores, let me give you a quick example. Uh, Pullman workers weren't exactly paid in cold, hard cash. They didn't have direct deposit back in those days, and instead, what they were paid with was called company script. I mean, think about Monopoly money. It worked really, really well at Pullman stores and it really didn't work well anywhere else because it really wasn't currency as anybody else would recognize it. And so in any case, you can imagine that the prices in Pullman stores were sky high. And because you didn't have anywhere else that you could take your script, you had no other choice but to spend it in those stores. Well, 1894 happened to be a relatively down year for the economy, and what Pullman does is he raises the price of worker rent where they're living, he raises their rent. Now, he makes it really clear that there would be no wage raise to come alongside this. And this was the final straw. Ultimately, what the Pullman workers are gonna do is issue a strike, and they're gonna go to a guy from Indiana, a guy by the name of Eugene V. Debs, that's an important name right there, and they're going to ask him to lead their strike. Now, why Debs? Well, on the one hand, Debs was a really effective labor organizer. He was the president of the American Railroad Workers Union, the ARW, and it was the ARW that had played a really important central role. In that great uprising of 1877 that great strike that really brought all railroad traffic west of the Mississippi River to a screeching halt and so it's not a coincidence that they would come to him to lead them but the problem and and Deb sees this pretty quickly is this is a losing battle you're not organized, I have had no time to organize you, there's all kinds of different logistical things that need to be taken care of, and the bottom line is we're not ready right now. Well, the Pullman, Pullman worker said, we're sorry about that, but too late, we've already pulled the trigger and we need your leadership. So what is Debs to do? He ultimately takes the job to lead them, and for a while it's not going so bad. Primarily because what Debs is going to do is he's going to instruct his ARW men not to handle any train, right? Any train that has even one Pullman car attached to it. Well, because there were many, many, many trains that had Pullman cars attached to it. Right What this is going to do is very similar to what happened in eighteen seventy seven and it's going to bring railroad traffic to a halt, so it's going very well, and not only is it going well on the strike lines, Pullman is getting a lot of pressure from the business community from from his from people within his own ranks because people can't move steel they can't move textile they they can't move sugar they can't move much of anything so There's a lot of captains of industry that are calling Pullman and saying, I don't know what the problem is over there in Pullman Town near Chicago, but figure it out because I'm losing money. This is your problem. You need to figure this out. And so there's a lot of pressure on Pullman, but very similar to Henry Frick. This is not a guy that rolls over very easily. What he does is he calls, not the governor, but the president. The president at the time is a guy by the name of Grover Cleveland, and it's probably going to sound familiar here he says to Cleveland something to the effect of I think that you're doing a wonderful job as president of the United States and I'd love to make a nice sizable donation to your re-election fund except I've got this little labor management dispute going on over here in Pullmantown. it would sure be nice if you could help me out. And the next thing you know, what happens is National Guardsmen are dispatched, and ultimately what they do is they break the strike, and in some instances, they're operating the trains. But the bottom line is, once the strike was broken, similar to what happened in Homestead, Pullman workers are replaced with non-union workers and this is a solid three to zero score at this point. Employers are very clearly on the offensive and workers are very clearly on the defensive. Now in case you're wondering, the key to this employer victory was a law called the Sherman Antitrust Act and ultimately what the Sherman Act says is it is a federal crime to interfere With the flow of goods or people from one state to another you can't stop the flow of goods from Louisiana into Texas for example well that's essentially what the Union was doing and it's ultimately on those charges violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act that Eugene V Debs is going to be sent to prison now he is going to be sent to prison and ultimately he's going to go through a really huge Personal as well as political transformation. He is going to become a really big person Really big personality within the socialist movement within the socialist party He is going to become a household name and he'll run for president Numerous times on the socialist party ticket and there's going to be a couple of times that he doesn't do too bad for himself Okay the other thing that he does while in prison is Is he helps to found yet another working class organization that we will know as the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW? Okay? And the whole purpose of the IWW is to form one gigantic worldwide union. And the concept behind this is once we have all workers, not just here in the U.S., but Mexico and Canada and all throughout Europe and Africa, the Far East and the Near East and the Middle East and South America, and you get the idea. Once we've got everybody organized, it's at that point that we can issue one big crippling strike and we can rebuild governments all across the world in a working class friendly image. Okay? If it sounds a bit far-fetched, it was a little bit far-fetched. But ultimately, that's what this labor-management conflict of the Gilded Age has begun to produce. So as you can see, the late 19th century was an incredibly violent time period with respect to labor-management conflict. And this conflict is going to continue to erupt throughout the next few years and well into the 20th century. Um, Ultimately at stake, what we have here is who does government really work for? Who does it really protect? And it's not going to be really until the 1930s that workers are going to be brought into the mainstream fold of American life with respect to government taking a vested interest within them. Now, because many of these people, you might even say most of these individuals happen to be of the immigrant variety, it's a double-edged sword with respect to how life is so difficult. Of course, it's difficult at work, but it's also very difficult in these urban centers where these individuals happen to live. You'll see what I mean in my next episode. For right now, thanks for joining me.